Would you open your Bible this morning to the book of Psalms once again? Perhaps today we'll conclude this little series on the foundation of believers. Every believer should be on a foundation, a spiritual God-given foundation from which he is stable and secure. If there's one thing I pray that all of us can leave this building with this morning and arise to face tomorrow with is the security that what you're standing on is unshakable. Now, Psalm 11, verse 3, though, it says this, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And in past messages, I have said that our faith in Jesus is our foundation. The Bible says that there is no other foundation that can be laid than the one which is laid, and that is 1 Corinthians 3, that is Jesus. But there's so many different opinions about Jesus, so many different ideas about him. Some people live by perception. They don't know much about the Bible. They don't read it much, but they have opinions. We live in an age of opinions. I call it just about a post-Christian era in America in which man's opinions are as good as anybody else's, and he bases a lot of his theology on his opinions. And he says, well, this is how I see it. And if there's a doctrine in the Bible you don't really want to maybe measure up to or deal with, you say, well, you know, this is how I see that. And he gives license to himself to believe any way he wants to. That's not a foundation. That will crumble and that will fall because that's not what Jesus honors. There's only one thing in the Bible that God watches over to perform, and that's his word. There is only one thing that Jesus said was necessary, and that's his word. And there is only one way that faith can come, and that's by his word. So the word of God, as he's given it to us, is a premium. We best not veer from it to the left or to the right, but... Do it as he says it, and when we find a conflict there, we best have a cross, because God will not change, and you must. And the cross is a place where you die to your ways so that he can have his way in you. For if you will not give him your life, then you will lose your life. You remember that? We said that the other night. It's a pretty narrow walk. Even the Bible says it's a narrow way, that few will find this. Many will hear about it. Many will subscribe to it but not all men will find it. All because of the fact that the simple message, the simplicity that is in Christ, is just too much to ask for some people to do. It's a life you live. And when you live the life that he gives you and you're founded on him, and that's what you're standing on, that's what you're basing your life on, you will be stable and your foundation will not crumble. I said three things that secured the believer to his foundation was the fear of God, his attitude towards and about God, the will of God, which you must find out. You're wasting your time in Christianity if you don't know what the will of God is. Because again, you go back to conceptual Christianity. Well, my concept or my perception is, and you do that. But the will of God is very simple. It's in the word. It's a revelation that God gives to those who seek it. That's why the mind has to be renewed, Jesus said, so that you can prove what the will of God is. And then the third thing I mentioned about what keeps us secure on this foundation is worship. Is worship. There has to emerge and come forth from all of us at some point in your glad life, the sounds of gladness. There has to be a noise of cheer that comes out of us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We're strong because of what we believe, and we can't contain saying that. We're worshiping people. We should be noted for worship and for praise and for our lives that not only honor God as we live, but honor God as we meet together with thankful hearts to worship. These are things that hold us fast. We don't sit around with our arms folded wondering if that really works. Is that really true? We find out. And once you're convinced and your heart is in agreement with the Lord, it's natural to worship and want to do those things. On this foundation, as we grow, 
God gives me certain assurances that makes me steadfast. I'm on a foundation. It's Jesus Christ. I'm believing him. I don't know a whole lot about it. I don't have a lot of revelation yet, but I'm promised that if I'll seek, I'll find. That if I am willing to follow after God, he will show me things, give me revelations of his word that will make me secure so that I will not be thrown off course, so that I'll be stable and steadfast. And I won't be moved away from the hope that is within me and so forth. And some of those things, there's four of them that I want to mention. I'll get to the fourth one in just a moment. But the first one that we talked about, assurances, these are simple. These are basic, fundamental, simple things that we get away from because the world is full of so much chatter. But one, I am forgiven. I'm forgiven. That means a lot to me because... I sinned a lot. My sins were a dark blob in my life. A darkness followed me most of my life. I couldn't get away from the fact that I was guilty. Guilt is a word which means a condition which you deserve punishment. You know you're wrong. That's why little kids, when they do something wrong, they lie or they steal. Every parent knows when the little kids lie and steal. They learn to do better when they get bigger, but when they're little, you can see it in their faces. They can't hide their sin because it is a sin. Have you know that children can sin? And when they sin, they can't hide it. <laughs> I've sinned. And that what they're showing is, I am guilty. What you just declared that I did I know in my heart that I have done it, but because I'm facing punishment, I'm going to make an excuse. I'm going to put the blame on somebody else, or I'm going to say, I couldn't help myself, or I'm just not able, and therefore it's not fair. We try so hard in this life to hide our guilt. But one day you have to admit it before God, because you'll never be saved unless you can. I am guilty as charged before God. I am a sinner. I cannot remove my sins. I can't get in enough baptismal pools. I can't attend church enough. I can't give enough money away to remove my sins. I can do absolutely nothing about my sinful condition. But a release from that has been offered by God through Jesus Christ, who paid the price for my sins so that I can now come to God and be forgiven. And I'm forgiven. I am forgiven this morning. The devil can't give me a flashback. He can't take me back to yesteryear and make me feel bad again. I can't stop temptations. And I think of some old things in my past. I think, oh, God. Then I think, I'm so glad that's not going to be held against me in the day of judgment. I've been forgiven. And the second thing that I said was that I am loved. That means a lot to me. To know that if nobody else loves you, if people reject you and say, it doesn't matter what. If you know that God loves you, then you know something that most of creation doesn't know. People. Because people are trying so hard today to be loved. They're trying so hard. Is tomorrow this day of the heart? No, they're trying so hard to be loved. They do it with money and things. But can you imagine the God of heaven, the God of creation, who's bigger than life, created everything with his word, singles you out on this planet to bestow on you his love? You don't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You were a sinner. And yet the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. Why? <laughs> because as we said, he has purposed to. He didn't love us because we were worthy of being loved. He didn't love us because of some clever attribute in our life. He loved me simply because he wanted to. And he shows me, he's been showing me for 40 years how much he loves me because he's been treating me better than I deserve. He's been giving and granting Marriage, wife, my family, my kids. I have been blessed with more 
than I could have asked for on my best day in an earlier time in my life. I look back now after all these years and what a ride, what a journey this has been. And I look at how I've been blessed and how he has given and granted and done. And I mean, all I can do is say, thank you, Jesus. I know I'm loved. And third thing I said last week, I can believe. Not everybody does. Very few actually do. The Bible says not all men have faith, but he's given faith to us. And if you're not sure if he has you, I can only have my own testimony. He's given faith to me. Who am I that I can believe God that he'll do something and then God do it? He didn't do it because I'm so smart, because I don't think I am. Then why would he do it? Because I believe. He didn't do it because I had labored in the church. As one fellow and I got into it many, many years ago, he had a problem with this faith message because I was saying you could be blessed on the basis of faith. That on the simple basis of the release of faith, God will not only honor his word, but do what he said and bring forth what he said. Well, his grandparents and ancestors, whoever labored in the church all their lives and died with this and died with that. And he said, if God was going to bless anybody, he would have blessed them. Well, I can't earn blessings. I'm so simple that when I come to God and he says, I'm the Lord, I'll bless you. I say, well, all right. I think I'm going to sign up for this. I want to be blessed. And he blesses me, and it angers and aggravates people. Because you say, I'm blessed because I asked God to do it. I believed he would, and he's done it. Well, that's not the way it works. That is the way it works. There is no other way for it to work. But I can believe. I can believe for health and healing. I can believe for a new car now. I can believe for better used ones. I can believe for mowers and healing and there's nothing impossible to those who believe. Do you hear me? This is not something I've conjured up. This is a gift. It is given to me to believe. It can grow because I must exercise it and must expand it and be strong in faith and not weak in faith. So faith can be increased. But it's a gift. It comes as a little seed. You exercise it, it gets bigger and gets stronger. It's a testimony and an encouragement to other people that if it worked for you, it'll work for me. Because I'm no different than you are. And you know that. So, well, you can remember things better than me. I, I, I. I'm amazed concerning memory. People say, oh, I don't have that kind of memory. How many songs can you sing? How many choruses can you sing with your eyes shut? A hundred? Fifty? How many words in 50 choruses? That's a lot of memory. You sing it because you want to. You do the same thing, the word of God. It can abide and live in you as a living force. But you can believe. Fourthly, this morning, I have the assurance of heaven. When my journey through this life is over, I am going to heaven. That will be my final resting place. Not a graveyard, but heaven. When my day is done, I will pass from death to life. It'll be a transition that God will make happen because that's the reward of the faithful. You will pass from death unto life. Paul says, I have a desire to depart. He had the assurance of heaven, a place much, much better than the earth. He said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. He said, for me to live is good, but he said to die is gain. Gain. Death is such a dreadful idea to so many people because they have no assurance of what happens next. We're doing everything we can. I won't condemn people to do this. That's all they've got. But some people go to the excess to try to live and not die. I'm wondering how long before they start freezing people so they can bring them back to life someday. I think they've already tried that or we're in the process. Somehow death is so final and it's so awful that when you die, it's the most 
awful thing there is because for so many people, they're not sure what's on the other side. That's one subject that everybody, everybody in this room, if you're old enough to talk, you've talked about it. And you've wondered about it. You've thought about it. What about heaven? So much in the Bible is said about heaven that we can't escape it. I mean, it's all good. Our treasures are in heaven. It's a place where there's no sorrow. There's no pain. Nobody is mean. Nobody is mad. Everybody loves everybody. But the world thinks, well, you know, everybody will go to heaven, and they got a big machine up in heaven. And all the ugly people, you put them in one side of this machine, and the angels crank them through, and they come out on the other side, and they're loving people. Well, the machine is planet Earth. If you don't come out on the other side the way you should, then you should be concerned. People who live their life with a sort of indifference to eternal things are probably in trouble. We're so busy with this life. We're so busy. Busy. I don't know why people are so busy. Maybe it's part of this, let me be kind, part of the computer age. Everybody is so busy. You want to get on a computer now and tell everybody what you're doing and how you feel. Like everybody wants to know. <laughs> Look at me. That's what I'm doing. I, you know what I ate for breakfast this morning? Eggs. And I'm sitting here thinking, don't bother me. <laughs> they don't do it anyway because I don't fool with that stuff. Yet, I won't be on Facebook. That's what I'm, I'm looking for, Facebook. Because there is a place called heaven that is not on this earth. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination of, you know, some erythrial thought that you have about bliss and, and you can find that now if you can just get in yourself some kind of a concentrated mode fold your legs stare at the sun get you some kind of karma you can find heaven now that's hogwash backwards that's nothing like that in the bible heaven is the abode of god it's where god is you know, the word heaven in the book of Matthew is used 55 times. I think that's the most of any book in the Bible. I think Revelation uses it like 48. I might not have got them all counted right. Not heavens, but just heaven. And 55 times in the book of Matthew, the word heaven is used. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there are several references, I think seven times, the word heaven is used in the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And it goes on to say in the Beatitudes that heaven is for these people. Heaven is a special place for special people. Not everybody that talks about heaven goes. Not everybody that learns about heaven goes. But Jesus taught them to pray. He said, our Father which art in heaven. Now, the Bible speaks of God being in heaven multiple times, multiple times. That heaven is the abode of God, and this is the way it works. When your life is ended here, and it is appointed unto man once to die, and you go from death to life, and it is in the presence of God. Would you turn to John chapter 14? John chapter 14 and verse 2. You're all familiar with this. These are very popular scriptures. If you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard this said either at the graveside or in a sermon prior. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled because a lot of people seem to have troubled hearts about tomorrow, the next life, after you die, whenever that is, you never know. But what happens then? It's a disturbing thought again to a lot of people. You know why? Let me just pause here for a minute. Because a lot of people still have a lot of guilt. They know they don't turn around and face God to live his way. They go to church hoping that'll work. Maybe this is enough. But their life is filled with me, my, and mine. It's a selfish, self-serving life. They know that. 
You can hear a sermon about several things that God wants you to do. They measure themselves. You might not want to, but your conscience will not let you get by without at least knowing that what is said you're not doing or taking comfort in the fact that you are doing it. And man who has guilt but doesn't do anything about it is a man who has problems with these things because his heart troubles him. He knows how to get rid of it. The message of salvation has been made clear. It's just he doesn't want to. He's got too many opportunities in life to do a lot of things that the gospel would hinder. If I live the way God wants me to, to I'm going to have a problem out there with several people, then I wouldn't get to be what I want to be. And so God, at the end, says, well, then the choices you have made have determined the judgments you will receive. How many of you know God is fair? God is fair. Every person who dies whenever they die, falls into the hands of a just and fair God. God has only to look at your life, which he remembers every detail. If he wanted to play it back on a screen, he could, and he can show you how you lived. He can show you the moments you were thinking, the thoughts you had, the motivations of your heart. He knows everything. And he can show you in that day why you could justify yourself with me and everybody else. God will point out to you. Remember what you were thinking here, here, and here? On the basis of this and the rejection of me, I judge you. It's fair. Heaven is offered to all of us. Now, these are the conditions. This is what you do. Jesus has made it possible, and he will make you able but this is how it works. And a lot of folks say, well, I want that. I just really and truly don't want to pay the price for that. Then when judgment day comes, God says, now stand before me. You know why you don't get to live with me forever? It's because you rejected me. And then it's over. Now, I've never been there. I can't verify that. But I know that God is fair. And I know that he is a judge. Because there is a throne of judgment. There's two of them in the Bible. The believer's judgment and there's a great white throne of judgment. That's an awful judgment. Where several billions of people, one at a time. There is no time. You won't get tired because that's an eternal state. You can stand at attention for 600 million years. But couldn't say that either because there's no years. There's no years, hours, or minutes in eternity. It's the eternal state. You just are as God is. And as he is, so will you be. Anyway, that's over both of our heads. But this business of troubled hearts, Jesus addresses, and he goes on to say this. In my father's house are many mansions or abodes, some say rooms, dwelling places. Now, if it were not so, if there was no such thing, if this was just a myth or a figment of man's minds, I would have told you. But he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, did he actually mean by that that I am going to leave this world and go and prepare for you all a place? Not in this world. Not a place that can be reached by a rocket ship. Well, heaven is just somewhere on the edge of the universe. No, that would be in the physical realm because if you had enough whatever you took, how many rockets and years to get there, you could get there by natural means. But this is something that's not natural. I'm going to prepare in another place a place for you. And if I go to prepare for you a place, I am going to come back after you and get you and take you unto myself so that where I am, you will be there also. So shall you ever be with the Lord. You know what? It's a wonderful hookup. But think of this. For me to have in this life, with my limited ability, yet have a divine life that assures me 
that Jesus, when he comes back, he's coming back for me, not because he said he would, but inspired by what he said, we're living like he's coming back. If you think he's coming back, you'll live like he's coming back. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2 and 3, he said something to this order. We, it's not yet clear to us what we're going to be like. But this is what we know. That when he shall come back, we shall be like him. And he said, and every man, whoever they are, everyone that has this particular hope in him, what will he do? He will purify himself. Why will he purify himself? Because he believes that when Jesus comes back, he is looking for something in particular that is different from everything else on this earth. He took something ordinary, me and you. Took something that was unworthy, me and you. Took something that was me and you. And transforms us by a simple act of faith. A decision that we make to take God at his word, faith. And he takes little ordinary, guilt-ridden, insignificant us's. Us's is a new word. And he takes us, and little by little, thing after thing, time after time, pain after pain, and he begins to change us. He's changing me. Remember my song, You Don't Know? He's changing me. My blessed Savior, I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going, but there's a knowing that someday perfect I will be. You're welcome. This is what he's doing. It becomes embedded in our heart and our thinking that if I truly am raised with Christ and he's coming back to get me, that I must live in such a way that he can say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because if I'm not living this way and I'm just taking all this for granted because I go to church, he won't say that to me. Didn't Jesus say, why do you call me Lord? Lord, but you don't do what I said? So every man that has this hope in him, like 1 John 3, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. Purifies himself. Colossians 3.1 says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. But it's in the seeking of those things you're finding treasures. Treasures that are designed to change your life and your ways and your character and your attitudes so that you really aren't the same person you used to be. Newness of life has come. All things are made new. You're living different. You're acting different. You're talking different. You're not liked anymore, but you found something in God that supersedes anything that man can do. And you're living this way, and heaven was made for you. He's coming back for one reason, and that's to get you and me, to take us out of here. We're the salt of the earth. The only thing that affects this earth for good right now is us, wherever us's are on this earth. People that are laboring to enter into their rest. People who are striving to enter in, people who are given their life for the purpose of being found faithful when he comes and not taking for, well, you know, my name's in the book because I go to church. That won't work. You got to make your calling and your election sure. You put your hand to the plow. If that's not important, he wouldn't have said it. If there was no place in heaven, he would have told us so. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, Hamilton, if I'm going, I will return. And I'm coming back for those people who are looking for me. Didn't he say that somewhere? Doesn't it say, for those who look unto him, shall he return the second time without sin unto salvation? Isn't that in Hebrews 9? Verse 27, I think. He said that. He's looking. He's watching right now in this room. He's in this room now because we're two or more gathered. He's in this room now. Whew. I don't want to embarrass you folks out in disc land, whatever you call the world out there. But I would like to shout. 
This is a shouting message. It's a shouting point. If you're not given to shouting, I'm not a shouter. Well, you ought to be. You ought to trade your old stuffed up self for a shouting spirit and let truth have its reign in your life and let it saturate down there and you there. Woo! Like that. See, every now and then y'all do that. Sometimes you drive through town. They were singing our song the other day that why would Jesus love somebody as unclean as me? I was singing with them. I'm sure people on occasion in life have looked over and said, what's that old man doing? Driving like, woo, like this here, because it's real. It is real. It is the benefit that I have derived from being able to believe what he has said. And it's a wonderful thing. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will enter into his courts with praise. He's worthy of all of this. The eyes of believers have been opened to see that your treasure, folks, is not found in your retirement policy in this life or a fancy job. Your treasure is what you give up this life for. It's in heaven. It's found in Jesus Christ, and he is the one. But he's going to change us. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that's another way of saying if we die. If our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved and died, he said, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you have that assurance this morning? If you died this morning, if we just all suddenly died in this room, would you go to heaven? Would you open your eyes and be there in that place of bliss where the glory of the Lord emanates from that? Would you be there? Would you be one of that number that is marching to Zion? Would you? See, if you're not sure, then you really need to realize that some people are real stable and founded well in the Lord because they have this assurance. Paul said, I am persuaded because I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And they're sure. Heaven is sure. You're absolutely certain that God's going to do this. Remember the verse about his sheep in John chapter 10? He said, and I give to them eternal life. I give them eternal life. We can't earn it. He said, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. I don't care what tomorrow holds or the end of the 70s or the 80s age-wise or the 90s if the Lord tells. I don't know what's out there, what comes and what, 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 or what. But I know this. He said, I will never perish. The day of death is just shutting your eyes in this life and opening your eyes in the next. And you don't have to cry about that. I do believe that a funeral for the righteous should be a glad time. I don't mean saying anything like an old geezer made it, but I mean it's just a time where you get to say even his reward now is eternal, or her reward is eternal. Oh, it's a wonderful thought to know that when you die, you go to heaven. You go where God is. You go to that eternal place that has been prepared for you. Turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read verses 3 through 5. There are four particular things I just want to note. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has birthed us or begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is what is to, he has begotten us to this, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven 
for you. Do you have your reservation? Are you signed up? Are they waiting on you to arrive? Will you get your room? Well, it's your question to answer. Verse 5, in the meantime, in the meantime, who are kept, one, by the power of God, two, through faith, three, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, even though now for a season you're in heaviness through many kinds of trials. Do you have your reservation? God says, because he loves you and because what he has prepared for those who love him is beyond their comprehension, eye hath not seen, mind has not conceived what God has laid up in store for those that love him. Isn't that right? That it's a mystery. There's something out there that is bigger than the human mind, the comprehending ability of the greatest minds. We begin to see this, that God has laid up these things for us. He has given us out of his goodness. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and give it to you in such a way that the reward of heaven is far greater than the price you paid on this earth. Honoring his son Jesus is what we do in this life and he brings us in to where he is, for where he is, there shall we be. And it will be a place of eternal bliss. And while I'm here on this earth, let me tell you about my assurance. The four things that he says, he says, one, you are kept, kept. And the word is, means guard, like a guard, a sentry. You are kept, secured, watched over by the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamite of God, a power that surpasses all power, a power which is so much that he said, no man can pluck you out of my hands. I give you eternal life and nobody can take it from you. There's power. We're talking about something not of this world, but something given to us of another world while we're in this world, the power to be kept, kept by the power of God through what? Is it faith? Does your Bible say faith? Well, no, wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Then are you kept by the power of God without faith? Well, you have no claim to the promise then. The promise is conditioned on faith. God is the one who keeps. God is the one who supplies the power. God is the one who made the place. But in the meantime, the one condition that he holds on you, this is throughout the Bible. I've been teaching for 40 years. Everywhere you look in the Bible, a condition for relationship with God, for pleasing God, being rewarded by God, everything has to do with faith. Because faith is something that you have to have in something that didn't come from yourself. It's something in and from God that you must agree to and live like. Faith takes you out of yourself and into God. And we want to have our faith in God to the degree that it grows where it's not even conscious of itself anymore. It's just like you walk up the pop machine. You put your money. You don't think about it. You put your money in because it's supposed to work. We live that way with God. It's supposed to work. He said he would. I wrestled with this and worked with this 20 years ago. Then I got to a place where, well, of course he'll heal you. I talked to a man this week. I don't know if he's dying or he's going to live. I don't know. But he's ill. And he said, I'm believing God. And I said, well, I would hope so. Well, of course you're believing God. You got no other choice. You got no other choice. I'm thinking, pray that you haven't wasted a lot of time through the years taking for granted what you're confessing because you're saying it won't make it work. You've got to believe it in your heart. If your heart doesn't say it, your mouth can say anything it wants to, but if your heart doesn't say it, it won't work. I could lay hands on, I could take Thomas up here and lay, this man is going to grow eight feet tall. <laughs> Thomas here is going to win the lottery and be a multimillionaire. Don't do that. How many of you know I can pray that? I can lay hands on myself and say, you're going to be handsome. 
<laughs> what are you laughing at? How many you know my heart says, it won't work. Because your heart has not received from God what will work. But you thinking of something you want to work, and so you say it as though it has to work because you're confessing it. I didn't mean to get off onto this. But a lot of folks are saying the right things, but so many times it doesn't work because you kind of left this life out of your life. This conditioning, it's like practicing. It's like staying in shape spiritually. You read all the time. You study. And then, well, that faith message, you know, that was good back in those days and when it was, you know, all for the people it was for and all. But, but now we moved on today. You ain't moved nothing. The just shall live by faith. Now, if they ain't no just anymore, then yes, moved on. But the just shall live by faith. You can't separate the two. But faith is nothing unless, first of all, it is in your heart as the inspiration of God for what he wants. And then you do it because he wants it. You change your life because he wants it. You become faithful. That's why faith worketh by love. Any other kind of exercise of faith, it's not going to work. And so you have to believe that you're going to be kept. You have to believe that God is supplying the power for you to make it and overcome through life. God does it. And he said, if you do, then you have something in heaven that is reserved for you. And back again to faith before I go on, look at verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, you receive the end of your faith. Receiving the end of your faith. That means it began somewhere, doesn't it? And it never stops. You receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Whenever my faith started, it is required to keep going because that's the only way. And let me say this before I go on. My faith is the privileged response I have to take God at his word, which has been revealed to me, because not everybody sees it, not everybody wants to, but when he shows it to you and you receive it and you step out to do it, what we call faithfulness, God will call faith. This is why he said in John 15, he said, if you keep my commandments, the Father will love you and whatever you ask, you shall receive. That's his reward in this life. You won't need to ask in heaven. You won't need faith in heaven. If you had to have anything in heaven, then you could fail in heaven, and you can't fail in heaven. The only thing you'll have in heaven is love. In this life, you have faith and hope, and you have love. But the greatest is love because it's eternal. The other two are for now. When we get to heaven... You won't need to believe to be there. You're there. You won't need to believe for healing. You don't need to believe for anything. You're there. The king is on his throne. Oh, and the river that flows and, and the trees and all the descriptions and the noise and the sounds and the praise and the honor and the joy and the light forever and ever and ever. What a place to look forward to going to. What a place as the Bible describes it. I can't get away from faith. Go to John chapter 3. I'm going to visit over here. It's a good place to go. John chapter 3, look at verse 15. Everybody knows verse 16, but look at verse 15. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who has everlasting life and who doesn't perish? Hey, folks, this is not mental acknowledgement. This is living as though he is alive and real. It's adjusting everything about your life because of the influence and the absoluteness of his presence. And then verse 16, I bet you can quote this in my heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he ends the chapter, verse 36. He that believeth on the son has what? Do you all in this room as I'm speaking, or are you out in the other world? Do you believe in the son of God? Well, then your present possession 
Half. H-H- does half mean have? Half. He that believeth on the Son of God hath what? Eternal life. Sinners believe in God. The devil believes in God. James speaks, you know, the devils believe in Jesus. We're not talking about, yeah, I know who I've heard of him. I know who he is. I've read about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to church. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm talking about living. Living like he is life because he said he was. He said these people possess have, currently are in possession of eternal life. They have it. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. That's fair. That's fair. Because you can believe, and if you don't want to believe, then you don't get life. Hath everlasting life. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. It might even say it again. Chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word. Now we add that to it. He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And get this now. Whoo, glory. I'm holding myself back because some of you look like you're straining this morning. He that hears my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Faith is a powerful thing. Faith not only secures you in this world and makes you steadfast, but it also puts you in the next world. And you can live now with a living reality that heaven is my home. I'm going there someday. I'm not there now because I have a mission. I'm in this earth for a reason. I'm put here just like all of you are. There's a reason we're here. God made no mistakes when he brought you to himself. He didn't bring you because you had something that he needed. He needs nothing. But he can transform you into whatever he wants you to be and get out of you that which furthers his kingdom. As I shared with a man the other day, I am nothing more than a little screw in a big machine that holds a piece down. I'm just a little screw, just a little clip in there that is so vital to something. And that's all I am. But you know what? I'm a part of the machine. The big wheels and all the stuff that people look at, that's you all. But for some of us, we're just that little piece in there that God can count on to hold your place and make it work. And when it's over, he'll say, I didn't give you a whole lot, but you made a whole lot out of it. That's better than him saying, man, I gave you a bunch and you did nothing. It's all yours. It's all yours forever. Your eternal resting place, heaven with God, with Christ. His radiance is the light of the new city. The new city will replace this old earth. This earth will pass away. There'll be a city come down out of heaven. It is so big. It's a place, it's a dwelling place for God's people. Jesus went to prepare such a place for us. There'll be no more sun. All out there will pass away. The stars, moons, everything will be burnt up. Everything will be absolutely darkness, except when that city comes down out of heaven. And the light of that city is God. Our highest spaceships, our satellites, whatever they are up there, are they 200 miles high? Are they 300 miles high? Maybe 300 miles. You know, that's a pretty good piece. But this new city is 1,500 miles high. It's 1,500 miles wide. It go from here to the Mormons out there in Salt Lake. And further than that, it's a big city. And it's made for one reason. To put me and you in it so we can enjoy the, his presence and whatever mine has not conceived. I don't know. 
I'm over my head. But I can take what he said and, and get joyful about that. I'm going to be in that city. 1,500 miles is no distance. There'd be no need for Greenpeace to be there. Because we go from one place to another, just like we were changed into that state in the twinkling of an eye. We can go from one side of it to the other in the twinkling of an eye. How do you know that? I don't. It's what I want to believe. I don't have any Bible for that. It's just how it appears to me. You don't have to believe that. But heaven is a state unlike anything you can imagine. Let me tell you all something. It is worth every price you have to pay to get there. And don't get so busy that you don't have time for it. Jesus said in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 14, Jesus said, blessed are they that do his commandments. Now, some translations say, blessed are they that wash their robes. I don't know how that Greek structure, that sentence is, how you can go from do his commandments to wash their robes. But I'm going to stay with the one I got. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. Isn't that good? Blessed are those people who encourage, preached at, smacked around, fussed at year after year. You've been fussing us for a long time. Good. Because what we're fussing at, just do what he said. Do his word. Do what Jesus said, because this is who the kingdom of heaven is for. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have right to enter into the gates into that city. It'll be a wonderful experience. It'll be a wonderful place. Who's going to be worthy to get there? Will anybody be worthy? Will anybody be accounted worthy? We'll go to Revelation chapter 3. Somebody asked Jesus one time about the eternal state. The husband died, a brother married a wife. He died, no children, and so on and so forth. All the brothers married the same girl, no children. And they said, whose wife will she be in, in eternity? Because we talk like that, you know. Dear couple that was married and had 50 years of a good marriage, and one goes before the other one, and then, then the other one goes and says, well, they're joined together again. You know, Jesus said, in heaven, you're like the angels. There's no such thing. Don't get disappointed. Oh, I guarantee you when Bonnie gets to heaven, she'll be happy without me. <laughs> and when I get to heaven, I also will be happy. I'll see her. She'll be there. I won't need her anymore. She won't need me. We're not married like married down here. We're not Mormons. <laughs> See, Mormons live such a life that they qualify to get their own planet. Now, they won't tell you this because that, that's too far stretched. But they get themselves a planet. And they take all their wives with their temple marriages, and they take all their wives, and they go out to that planet, and they start them a world. They become gods. And they produce children out there in the world. I guess like they produce children here. And then these spirit babies come back to this world looking for a, a birth to enter into and become a man and then evolve into a righteous life and then become a god. Only Catholicism is to me a stranger religion than Mormons. Because in the eternal state, there is no marriage. He said, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor given in marriage. The thing I was going to point out to you was that those who are accounted worthy to obtain that world. Somebody will be. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. And then he goes down to verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Now, a garment, you read in chapter 19, has to do with your righteous ways, your righteous deeds, your righteous living. That's how your garment is considered a robe of righteousness. 
He said, these have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white. Why? They are worthy. It is God who says, not you. None of us are worthy because we have sinned. At the invitation of God, we become his children. We haven't discerned it. We're not worthy of that either. But as we respond to God, who gives us more to respond to, and we begin to live like he wants us to live, it is God who declares those who are willing to live that life and give up this life for the next life will be accounted worthy. They're worthy. The world is not good enough to keep us here. Have you noticed, I'm sure you have, that the unfolding of the events that are going on in this world are hateful and awful? There is death and dying and meanness everywhere that it's hard to trust anybody, that there's lying and deceit and cheating everywhere. And the world lies in darkness and the church at this modern day is trying to gain the approval of this dark world. What is going on? It's a post-Christian era. There's few Christians left. We're willing to forsake the world and all of the stuff that it has in order to obtain the next world. And if you're willing to live like that, it's Jesus who says you will be accounted worthy of the next life. Look at verse 5 and we're close. In verse 5, that wonderful word, he says to every church, he that overcometh, he is the one who shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you have an ear to hear, he said, you need to hear what I just said. He that overcometh. He that prevaileth in this life doesn't give up, doesn't turn back, doesn't change the course of your life, doesn't set God aside because of whatever. Those who overcome stay with what he said. And they just stay true to that book. Jesus said, while you might have suffered in this life and you didn't have a lot of things that people had and so on and so forth, I will confess you before my Father. I will say to God, I will say to God, Spirit, whose light will be on the throne. But Jesus is the physical representation of what you can't define and see. And Jesus will say, I know you. I know you. I remember. I know I've kept track of you. I prepared all this place for you. So while we're not there yet, remember this. There's a life you live on this earth. It's not a life designed by man. It's not a life of good ideas and lofty and laudable efforts. This is not a book writing place. There's a life you live on this earth. It's very simple. Just take God at his word. Just do what he said. The last words his mother ever recorded in the Bible, Mary, she said, whatsoever he saith, do. God asks no more of us, and yet gives us so much for doing it. Are you ready? Will you make it? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will give us, especially in this area of our lives, as we embrace our foundation, that you will give to us this assurance that as Paul wrote, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? We have overcome. We're going to heaven. When our day comes, whenever it is, so be it. Because when it comes, we'll go to heaven. And there shall we ever be with the Lord. Dear God, if these folks before whom I stand miss that, then we spent a lot of unfruitful hours in this building. We've wasted a lot of time because we didn't make application and it didn't work. But if it is working, I ask that you would encourage your people to tighten the grip on that plow, to hold fast, to overcome in all things, and keep looking up knowing that our Redeemer is coming. The hour declares it. 
May our living hope return. May he call our names. May we hear his voice, the sound of the trumpet. May we hear it. May these vile bodies, these mortal bodies rise up to meet him in his immortal state. May we ever be with him. Dear God, so much, so much is there. Make this to be the joy of our heart. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.